Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Shivani Soroya. Shivani is the founder and CEO of Tala, the leading financial technology company in emerging markets. Millions of people have borrowed through Tala's smartphone app, which provides instant personalized credit to underserved customers in East Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. Tala is backed by leading venture and impact investors, including PayPal, Revolution, IVP, Ribbit Capital, Data Collective, and Lowercase Capital. Earlier this year, Forbes named Tala as one of the top 50 fintech companies in the world, and Tala's work has been highlighted by the New York Times, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, TED, and TechCrunch, among many others. Tala is headquartered in Santa Monica, shout out LA, with additional offices in Nairobi, Manila, Mexico City, and Bangalore. Prior to founding Tala, Shivani held a variety of positions in global health, microfinance, and investment banking, including with the UN Population Fund, HealthNet, Citigroup, and UBS. Shivani is an Aspen Institute Finance Leader Fellow, a WEF Young Global Leader, Senior TED Fellow, and Ashoka Fellow. She's also on the board of Stellar and holds an MPH from Columbia and a BA from Wesleyan. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Shivani Saroya. Hey, Shivani. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me onto the podcast. Of course. I'm excited to have you here. It's crazy to read that bio. Not bad. You've done some cool stuff. Thanks. I mean, I always say, you know, it's sure the founder gets a lot of the recognition, but it is really a team activity here in terms of all of us putting in. And so I think of it as we've accomplished a lot. It's awesome. I love that. I actually think I heard one time that you said you work for Tala and like you phrase it like you are an employee. And then someone said, and tell me if I'm wrong, maybe this is an urban legend. And then someone said, and you said, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I, I'm the CEO. But you phrase it like you work for Tala. Can you tell me a little bit about that philosophy? Like, and is that true? Am I making that up? You are not making that up. I do it all the time with friends or new people. I think there's this element of, sure, I am the founder and I am the CEO of the company. But starting something, while it's hard and you take that leap of faith and, you know, you put your own blood, sweat and tears into it, that's not really ultimately the thing that's going to make it successful, right? It's the the journey after and, and there's a lot of people that have to come along that journey with you. And so at this point for me, it's like, yeah, I am... I am lucky, I am honored to be part of this awesome team that is building and trying to solve this massive problem. And so it's less a I work, right? But I am a part of something. And that's how I think about it. I love that. 
We need we need more of that humility in, in the business world. It, it's really refreshing. Okay, so before we dive into the meat of the chat, I do want to start with a bit of a fun icebreaker question. We ask all our guests this. So what is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be like a fun fact. It could be maybe like a show or a movie you really like. Something new that you learned that you want to share with everyone. I learned something that's uh, maybe not so little, but, you know, I think just in the spirit of what this conversation is about, I'll share it. It is something that's just kind of changed my mindset this week that I never thought of it in, in this way. Someone said something in passing that, you know, the things that we are most afraid of have actually already happened. And it's true, right? We think so much and overanalyze the like, you know, what if this happens and then this happens and then this happens? But the reality is you are in that position now and what you're doing is trying to solve it. You can no longer be afraid because you're already there. Now it's what do you do with this thing? And it kind of diffuses the situation for yourself. So I know that that's something, you know, a much bigger topic to unpack, but that simple phrasing of the thing I am most afraid of has already happened. For me, uh, all week, I've been really thinking about that and trying to think of, you know, how do you apply that thinking to other things? Yeah, absolutely. It's always helpful to hear those one-liners that really stick with you, especially in those really hard times, because it's not easy and there is a lot of fear around what's to come. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's great. All right, so let's get into it. Let's start with childhood because I know this had a large impact on what you're building today. Can you tell me a little bit about growing up in both India and New York and what that was like? And then maybe what you wanted to be when you grew up, if you had any maybe inkling that you would be in business or if there was something else that you wanted to be when you grew up. When I was little, I guess what I would say is, you know, did I think I was going to be an entrepreneur? No. But did I really like solving problems? Yes. And I think there was just this thing where problems for me felt very achievable to figure out and kind of deeply just like fun and emotional. I just was, you know, when I saw something not working, you know, whether it was through a relationship, you know, with friends, I was always the mediator, whether it was, you know, figuring something out or helping someone I started a resume business on the side as an example when I was in middle school because I kept hearing from adults that were friends with my parents, you know, oh, like, you know, I have, I couldn't get that job or that interview didn't go well. And I started digging and I actually helped my dad with his resume, but realized that, you know, it was because they weren't actually sharing the impact of their work. There wasn't a cause and effect. And so I was like, this is simple. And I really like talking to people. So I'm going to do this on the side. And so it's kind of hilarious, a middle schooler that was helping college students and adults. And, but all it required was sitting down with people maybe for 30 minutes, right? And asking them what they did there. And so it was just, how do I get my head around this problem? So I didn't know that at the time, but I think back to those times and I realized the things that I really enjoyed about it actually still stay true, right? Which was, how do I make an impact? How do I problem solve very quickly and iterate? And then how do a business model around it? But then ultimately, I wanted to be doing something that involved people and being able to understand and firsthand see the impact that they were feeling as a result of me being a part of that problem solving. And so that's something I can definitely point to. To your question around what did I want to be when I grew up? 
I'm a little far away from it, but maybe not. I thought (laughs) I really wanted to be a fashion designer or otherwise a magazine editor. And, you know, when you think about what you do as a CEO, a lot of that does come into effect. You know, it is definitely creative. And then it is a lot about editing and focus. And so I may not have gone into that industry, but definitely the, you know, that idea of like you are moving things around and creating a picture out of it does resonate. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. Not enough people talk about how much creativity is required in entrepreneurship. Like, I feel like the the conversation is more around, yeah, painters are creative and fashion designers, but there's actually creating something from nothing requires an immense amount of creativity that is obviously very similar. And you've got some nice artwork in the background while we're chatting. So I feel like maybe you could have been a great fashion designer editor. That's awesome. Tell me about India and New York growing up. I'm really curious to hear about what that was like and if that had any real impact on what you're now building today. It definitely did. And, you know, my whole family is from India and I'm an only child, but I have 27 first cousins. (laughs) And so I think for me, you know, whether it was living in a really big family or growing up in that way and never feeling like you are solo, but you are always part of a community. And then in that broader sense, you know, living in in India and then growing up in New York City, it's personal space is not a thing. (laughs) You are always kind of understanding what another individual is going through. And so I think that both of those experiences for me allowed me to really develop, I would say, adaptability, but really empathy. And this idea of right in front of you, you, if you open your eyes, you can see what someone else is going through. And so it's not hard to find that. You're not isolated from it. And I I think when I think about the journey to starting Tala, I always talk about it as you have to be proximate to the problems you're solving. And so for me, that meant actually, you know, following customers around, walking alongside them as they led their daily lives. And as a child, being able to do that as well, I think is what gave me the skills to ultimately be able to build trust so that I could follow people around and I could observe their daily life. Yeah. It sounds like too, I mean, even like tying it back to the resume thing you mentioned, you've a good gauge on people. Like they can tell you their story. They can tell you their spending habits, or you can even just observe, like you said, and you can kind of get it. And I think that's also a skill that is very, very difficult. Like people are complicated and it's hard to sum them up in a resume and it's hard to understand how they think about money and spending but it sounds like that's like a skill that you've really carried throughout. Like you really deeply understand people. Do you feel like, is that rooted in empathy? Is that rooted in like great parenting? Is that rooted in, like where, where does that come from? Because I think that's something that I'm sensing is you can, you can really judge well and like understand humans pretty quickly. It seems like even you saying a 30 minute resume workshop, I'm like, oh my God, I feel like that, that would take, that would take me like three or four hours to sum up someone's life's work so far. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes into our ability to listen. I also think, I mean, so it's that ability to listen and be quiet, but I think it's this idea of suspending judgment, right? And I think that if I think back to childhood, to early adulthood, I'm just going to say it. I think I was really naive, right? And I think that is the, in some ways, that's what we need is that you approach every situation actually with curiosity and you approach it being like, I just want to learn And so that does open you up for listening to stories, but also gaining feedback, right? I don't shy away from that. And so 
I think over time, though, as you become more successful and you do things, you know, better and you're building, in some ways you actually lose that skill because you have these deep rooted opinions. And so it's, it becomes harder for you to actually be naive, to be curious. And so I think that's one of the things that many people talk about is how do we become lifelong learners? And I think that's that thing that I can say even in the beginning part of my career helped me the most. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you also started this when you were not, I mean, you were young in your career. You'd had a lot of experience, but I'm sure you carried that with you when you started. Are there any things that you do now? Maybe it's reading books. Maybe it's always meeting new people, podcasts that keep that lifelong learner thing going. Because like you said, you always want to be curious. You always want to be learning new things. Are there any things that you do now that you feel like help you maintain that? I look for coaches. So I'll, I'll say that, you know, whether it's on my fitness side, <laughs> whether it's uh, to your point on maybe taking another hobby, reading a book, you know, trying to be a better parent myself, et cetera. I'm, I, I try to kind of get in there to say, I know I learn better when I'm in a coaching environment. I was a competitive athlete growing up and it's something for me that's like, if I know the goal and I know what great looks like, then I can create a learning path to getting there and be curious about how to do it. But it's really, if I don't know that end destination or I don't have that vision and someone guiding me along the way, that becomes difficult. And so I think that's the thing I would say is, you know, if it's, it's hard to put yourself to like self-motivate, how can you look for coaches in your life? I love that idea. Yeah. I um, I feel like even having coaches for different areas, like you said, fitness and relationships and all the different buckets. I know you've also mentioned a lot how you're a big journaler and that's something that you've asked a lot of people on your team to do. It's also something that you've talked about a lot. It's like, it's like your thing. I imagine that's also another way for you to like maintain that curiosity and to like be introspective. Can you tell me a little bit about like your journaling practice? What does that look like? And how is journaling really like impacted your life? And also maybe that does play a role in in what we're talking about. Sure. I would love, I would, and you know, in some ways I wish I can go back to, to understanding, okay, you know, on my calendar, as an example for our team, I show them when I journal. So I do it super early. I'm a morning person, (laughs) but the questions are there. The questions I write about every single day in the morning and at night are on my calendar. Um, I'd love to understand, you know, hey, is anyone else doing it? But (laughs) for myself, it can be anything from a five minute to a 10 minute or 15 minute practice. I only block 15 minutes for it. But my dad actually told me once, and he's really why I started journaling because, you know, he would make me do it as a kid and he would make me sit down. I remember doing this even when I was really little. He would say, all you have to do is write one page. (laughs) And he actually, I mean, he specified, he was like 10 lines. That's all I'm saying. 10 lines. You can write about nothing, you know, but you're going to write 10 lines. And it's so interesting because what ends up happening is sometimes that 10 lines is hard because you don't really want to do it. But then you actually realize what it does is it actually just takes you out of your brain and you do start really kind of opening up to yourself. And so that's the other thing I would say with learning. It's that we can go and ask questions. We can get knowledge. But until we actually put it back into our own minds, right? Are we really processing it? Are we actually reflecting on it? And so 
that's the thing for me with journaling is it, it gives me that one little feedback loop every single day, morning and night. I just ask myself the question, hey, did I actually do a good job today? Was I actually the multiplier that our team needs? Should I have done anything differently? What didn't work well? And then the next day, I may not actually do better, but at least I have it in the back of my head of saying, oh yeah, yesterday you didn't do this well, try again. Yeah, it's like a mini way to hold yourself accountable, which I think is really special. What questions do you ask in the morning? So if the end of day is, did I do well? Am I the force multiplier that I needed to be? What's those morning questions? Is it, what are my priorities for the day? Or what do I need to do to be that force multiplier? Or what are those those morning questions? Sure. I'm like, maybe I'll just read them to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to get inside. I'm like, I'm peeking into your calendar right now. So I call it a uh, setting. And so I, I ask myself three questions. What things, if achieved, would lead me to consider that this day was a total success? What things, if achieved, lead to significant progress towards my bigger goals, weekly, monthly, quarterly, or yearly goals? And who on my team needs help today? Oh, I love this. There's this like service mindset that I'm hearing you keep talking about really serving your team and really being a force multiplier that we just need more of. I mean, it's seriously like, I just want to take this as a <laughs> package it up and scream it in some people's ears because I I think it does take a team and hearing you talk about it as a leader is very powerful. I appreciate that. Okay, so so let's get into the 20s, the, the topic of this show. So I know that you went to school at Wesleyan and this was obviously the beginning of your journey. You studied government and international relations. Can you tell me a little bit about why that major, how you liked your college experience, and then maybe like how you were thinking about your career path at that time? What were the things that you wanted to pursue post-grad? Were there things during college you really enjoyed? Let's just maybe talk about that time a little bit. So I studied, it was basically multidisciplinary. So at Wesleyan, I studied economics and government, and it was multidisciplinary. And I think that's the other thing is that I like being in the gray. I like the idea of, you know, understanding multiple systems and how they work together. And so I think that's why I did that major. My undergrad thesis was about a particular community in Southern India. And what I wove into it was saying, okay, how was this community affected by a change in public opinion? And what I realized, and this is why it ties to both government and you know political changes, public opinion, but then also economics and livelihood, is that as a result of that political opinion changing and societal opinion changing of this community, they lost their entire livelihood. And so it's really, I think for me, like the culmination of like what I studied in college was this idea of how do these different systems affect each other? And so I definitely did not know what I was going to do after college. <laughs> All I knew was I really like multidisciplinary and I really like numbers. I genuinely like spreadsheets. <laughs> it's weird, but I do. And all of my internships in college were in investment banking or otherwise in the fashion industry. <laughs> and I ended up going into investment banking after college even though I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do, but it kind of, I fell into it. I'll be honest. You know, I had my internships. I had a job offer. I didn't know if I was going to go to grad school or anything after that. And so I said, I'll just start working. And I'm actually glad I did that because 
I didn't think so much about it, but what it enabled me to do again was be curious in the experience and keep asking myself, do I like this? Do I want to do this? And after two years, I decided I didn't. Gotcha. Yeah. I think it's that idea of like not being afraid to kind of live in the gray a little. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of social entrepreneurship, right? It's just like so many different systems coming together. It's the government, it's the private sector, it's the nonprofit. When you were putting together your thesis, quickly, just to clarify, can you tell me a little bit about the political change, the social change that did happen just for context? So, and then we can, I'll dive into my question, but can you explain a little bit more about that? I'm curious about that situation. Sure. There's a, there's a community in Southern India called the Devadasi community. And traditionally, that community was uh, a very religious community, women run, and uh, their livelihood was earned by living and working in the temples in southern India. What happened was as uh, public opinion started changing in terms of more Western opinions coming in, Western elite, essentially society started to think of these women that were working and living in the temples as prostitutes. And so it went from something that was sacred to the community to suddenly, you know, the perception of this community was changed. And so then they became banned from the the temples and essentially their livelihood was taken away. And I just became really, really curious about, you know, how can that happen? How can an entire community change, you know, in a very short time frame, in about 50 years? from just this change that's happening that you also realize is happening at so many different levels, right? We know it's happening at the government level, but it's like the trickle down effect of that was very different. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I I feel like the example really helps ground it for sure. When you were writing that thesis, was there a part of you that was like, I'm really want to study sociology and like how this could possibly happen. I want to go work for governments or I want to go do like a Peace Corps abroad. Like, were you thinking? Because I mean, from my experience and I've interviewed a good amount of people so far, there's very, very, very few college students that have such a passion for something so specific and unique and really build a thesis the way that you did. And I'm just curious where your mind was at at that time? Were you like, maybe I do pursue this for my career? Or were you really set on, you know, I have these investment banking internships. It's probably great money. It's also probably in, you know, America, maybe near family. Like, what was your thought process there? Because I I just find it so unique. There's very few people I've, I've interviewed that have just such a thoughtful, passionate college experience where they have all these ideas. And you know what I'm saying? I'm curious, like, what was your thought process? So growing up, one of the other things I did was work for the Gay Men's Health Crisis, which is an HIV and AIDS advocacy organization in New York City. So again, I I was really passionate about, like you're saying, you know, these different systems, the public health system, you know, the political system, societal issues or economic systems. But again, in the spirit of just like being really open, it's like, yes, I, I wanted to work in those industries and I wanted to go work as a social, I wouldn't say entrepreneur at the time, but someone within these social enterprises. But, you know, as a only child, as a, as a child of, you know, immigrants, it was really hard to kind of say, can I take that on? How will I make money? What will my parents say? And in addition to the kind of fear around it, also at that time, you know, when you think about 10, 15 years ago, social enterprise wasn't really a thing. 
right? Social impact wasn't talked about as a career. And so there was just also less information for me to even, you know, know who to talk to. And so I kind of took the thing that was safe and the thing that while I knew my heart wasn't in it, I didn't really have anything else that, you know, I could really put up as, hey, this is just as good, (laughs) right? And so I went with the thing that, you know, everyone told me I should do. Yeah, I really appreciate your openness as well. I think it's very common and we're so lucky that social entrepreneurship and social impact is becoming more part of the conversation and companies like yours are hiring people so people can kind of get that they don't have to go work for, you know, an organization maybe they're not as excited about. They do have a very, you know, lucrative, successful social enterprise they can go to. So it's changed. And I think a lot of people now take that great salary. They know they'll learn. They'll learn stuff, even if it's not that like deepest passion. So I know you did investment banking for a while. How did you, for like, it says a few years um, before going to the UN Population Fund, how did you like that gig? And do you feel like it probably taught you a lot about finance and maybe some of the foundations that you've now brought into Tala? Can you tell me a little bit about that time and yeah, how investment banking went? It was honestly actually a very great experience. I think that it forces you to learn quickly. It gives you really good work ethic. (laughs) You do learn everything from, again, you know, building a model all the way to really thinking about presentation. I worked in equity research initially. And so, again, you're reading reports, you're synthesizing, you're listening to calls, and you're having to formulate an opinion, right? then present that opinion and stand behind it and have proof points and conviction. And so I, I think it, you know, it puts you through <laughs> uh, in an intense period and you don't sleep a lot and all those things. But I think it definitely created a formative experience for me. And I guess to your other part of the question, you know, what, what else can I say from it is, is yes, I think it, it gave me the foundation of Again, team building in some ways, thinking everyone has a role in it. Everyone's got to show up. Again, you you do more than is asked for you from you. And I think that's the other piece of when you really think about force multiplier, right? You are going beyond expectations. And so I think that's another thing that resonated. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about that is it gave me the formative experience to understand how the financial system works. Right. So thinking about public markets and thinking about, again, now as a as a CEO of Tala, I have to think about how are investors viewing us as a company. Right. Even though we're in the private sector, public markets affect us. And so being able to, again, have a seat at the table and see that firsthand really, really early on. It's not something that scares me. I love that. It's also a little meta too, because you guys are a business that helps other people start their businesses. So even on like a more micro level, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the companies that are being getting loans from you all are not at the size of Tala, but they're starting out and hopefully they will be one day. And so you can even help, you know, knowing what the public markets helps you all. And then it also helps the businesses that you're helping fund. So it's very, it's very meta. I interviewed a little over 3,000 business owners in emerging markets. And when I came back from that experience and went back into banking, it became even more meta for me because I realized, hey, there is so much potential there, right? And when we think about these you know, public companies and how the market is viewing them, I'm like, huh, can they really stand behind their numbers in the same way that these individuals can? They take it so seriously. 
And I think that was that thing for me realizing like, I want to go help them because they have that potential and nobody can see it. And on this side, we're putting things out and it's a good story and a good packaging, but do we have the same fundamentals (laughs) that they do? I love that. And I'm sure they're also more open to coaching and listening and learning and being honest, which I think can go a really long way too. So you're in investment banking, and then at some point you decide, I'm going to make a switch. Can you tell me a little bit about what that switch was and why you decided to take your career, not in an entirely different direction, but in a slightly different direction? It goes back to knowing kind of the entire time that my heart wasn't in it, but still wanted to do the best I could. But at some point I realized this is not for me. So what I started doing along the way was actually, again, getting more curious. And so I would tell every 20 something to really take advantage of your alumni network. And that's what really helped me find a different path and explore different paths. And so I started reaching out to people that had been in investment banking, but then had gone to pursue a different career. And you know, a lot of folks that I talked to ended up going into microfinance, going into venture, going into all these different things. And, you know, when I learned about microfinance, I was like, wow, I'm from India. This is something that is happening even in my own country. And it seemed like a feasible way for me to understand how I could marry this idea of financial services or kind of the finance background I had with social impact. And also, again, be in a place where my family would not, you know, kind of fear my safety and all these things. And it just kind of fit together. So that's really what got me starting in this field of financial inclusion is I worked in microfinance in India. Through that experience, I realized, okay, I saw the impact, but also saw some of the gaps in the solution. So I ended up going back to school and went to Columbia and studied econometrics and data science. And then from there, I ended up actually going and working at the UN Population Fund. And that's essentially what took me in this direction. I had one, you know, back step where I went back into banking, (laughs) but that is a separate conversation. I love that. Can you tell me a little bit about what working for the UN Population Fund is, I think, and what your role there was as an analyst? I knew you studied the benefits of microcredit programs. Can you tell everyone also maybe a little bit more about what what is microcredit, what is microfinance, and then what your role was there and like why also the UN cares about that? Maybe I I know you're so deep in this world and you understand, but we know we have some listeners who who don't know as much about this world and financial inclusion. Could you share a little bit more about what your work was like there? Sure. Uh, So the UN Population Fund essentially is studying population systems. So they're really trying to understand what are the things that are affecting population reduction, growth, quality of life, progress out of poverty. It's a pretty broad mandate. And I think that's actually why my boss at the time, you know, she was an economist and she was the lead economist for West Africa as well as Sub-Saharan Africa. And she she wanted to take away the theoretical and make it much more quantitative. And she said, we do have millions of dollars coming into these different programs, right, that the UN Population Fund is, is funding or other UN organizations are. And so how do we actually know what the benefit is? And so in particular, we looked at health programs as well as financing programs. 
And we really just wanted to build a, a cost benefit model. It was like super simple, obviously took on a life of its own eventually. <laughs> but the idea was, if we are to give someone $100, and what we want to understand is between that person receiving the money and us getting repaid, where does the money go in the system? And if we have, let's say, 10 indicators that can tell us that this individual is now starting to move more money into these areas, then we can see that they're, they're moving away from day-to-day living or facing shocks to actually starting to invest in their quality of life. So as an example, one of the, you know, the things we looked at was, does this individual spend money on education, their kids' education? Do they spend money on home improvements? They didn't have a toilet, now they do. They had no roof, now they have a roof right? Whatever roof that may be. And then we look at the materials they have. You know, how many pots and pans do they have in their house? It could be as simple as, you know, do they pay their electric, their utility bills? And is that increasing over time consistency wise? But the point is that we tried to narrow it down to 10 different things and then really start to see the progress or the increase in spending in those areas. And then in terms of what microfinance is, microfinance encompasses the availability of financial products designed for micro entrepreneurs or individuals that are living really at the base of the pyramid. So individuals more at the $2 or under category. It's obviously evolved over time, but it was really designed for that. And the primary product within microfinance is microcredit. And that is really small dollar loans for underserved or unbanked individuals. Amazing. And I think the important thing that a lot of people forget when they hear the word loan is that it's not a grant. Like things actually get repaid. And so that's why there is a business model here because the money comes back. So, and, you know, I think you guys have like an over 90% repayal rate or something really high. So you're not just giving out money, which is often more associated with like nonprofits. You actually are giving it to then have the expectation it comes back into the funnel, which I think is another like key piece there too. Completely. And, and I think, you know, after working in that industry, That's actually why at Tala, I would say we actually don't focus entirely just on the unbanked. We focus on what we call underestimated or underserved, and that it was really important for us to not just have credit products or loan products, but also build a full financial suite within our mobile app. So that way you are really providing a customer with the same kind of tools and products we have and creating really that kind of credit score, credit history that also functions in the formal financial system. Absolutely. I think it's crazy as you're, as you're giving all these examples of those 10 criteria, it's everything you're saying, utility bills, toilets, shelter. It's, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's all that basic stuff that we take for granted here. And we hear in theoretically that not everyone has access to these things, but building a business model around solving for it and identifying if actually giving money back and reinvesting is helping is I think what's really, really powerful. And it's you're the perfect person to do it. After studying this at the UN Population Fund, then you're like, okay, let's build a business. So maybe as we move through, I know you said you did investment banking, you did this master's program and your United Nations Population Fund, a brief stint back in investment banking, and then starting Tala. So can you tell me a little bit about what that early, those early days were of starting it? Obviously, I'm I'm sure when you were working at the UN Population Fund, you saw that it worked 
that like microcredit programs worked and you could build a business around it. Can you just tell me a little bit about what led you to actually start it versus maybe continuing the work at the UN Population Fund or joining someone else that was doing microloans or microfinance work? I'm really curious to hear about that like entrepreneurial founder story. So I would say when I was at the UN and listening to all these stories, yes, I saw it working, but really what I saw, and that's what led me to do this, was that we weren't solving the problem. You know, and I had, you know, interviewed over 3,000 people across nine different countries. And what I kept seeing was that if they stayed in the microfinance system, sure, it was working. But they were getting access to loans, but they weren't actually getting access to a bank account. They weren't getting access to insurance products, savings products. And so to that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, credit was being really used across the board. And there was an upper limit to how much credit they could even gain. Because what they still lacked, and that's that's kind of why I started Tala, is they really lacked a financial identity a way for them to go into the formal financial system and actually get credit like the rest of us or open up a bank account and protect their money and use their money like we do, right? So they were having to travel large distances to pay bills, pay really high costs to do that. And, you know, for us, we buy things on our credit card, right? We get rewards for being good customers and none of that was there for them. And so what I saw was actually a lack of hope, a lack of confidence. I saw that they didn't trust the financial system and they didn't think they should, that they were even a part of it. And then on the other side, by living and working in those markets, many times I would walk a customer into the bank myself and say, I will vouch for this customer. And I would hear from, you know, the bank officers or loan officers, and they would repeatedly say to me, Shivani, we can do this for you. Uh, this one time, but how many times are you going to do this? And at some point, you know, it started to click for me that it wasn't scalable. And so before even getting to our solution, I started lending to these customers myself and using my savings. And, you know, luckily a friend of mine came to visit me in one of our markets and said, you know, you're crazy. (laughs) You are, you know, giving away your savings. What is happening? And how are you making these lending decisions? And, you know, it was so great because these are these moments that have stayed with me, which is I then articulated my criteria. And I actually told him, I said, oh, well, you know, I I can see the difference between this tile maker and this one. You know, I see that this individual has a larger network than this individual. I see the consistency in when she buys her inventory and where she buys from. I see that she consistently saves a certain amount of her money every month for her son to take a class. I see all these different things. And he's like, oh, that makes sense. You're underwriting her based on her daily life. And that was it. I mean, really, I was like, okay, now I need to think about where I get this data, right? And this daily life data, all these things that I had observed. Maybe that was the thing is like, realizing what was missing in the financial system, and we know this very at a very wide, large scale, is that only 30% of the adult population is even in a credit bureau. And so the majority of the world's population is living outside of credit bureaus. And even like it gets further than that. So it's like, yes, we don't have credit scores. We don't have credit histories because 85% of the world is cash-based. And then 
Further, it gets into, okay, infrastructure-wise, most emerging markets or markets outside of, you know, the ones that we really think of are, they don't even have national ID systems. So in a market like the Philippines, there are 17 different forms of identity. And so when you really think about it from that perspective, you almost can't blame banks, <laughs> right? You start to realize, oh, wow, there is so many obstacles to getting to serve this customer. And so when you think of the cost and the risk, you can't blame a bank for saying the perception is that this population is risky. But for me, I realized, okay, well, I need to find data and then I need to build a new supply chain. Essentially, how do we build a new system rather than try to include these individuals into our current system? <laughs> I essentially then went back to banking and was like, I will just find an organization that's doing this because I could never do that, right? <laughs> but then after being in banking again and realizing like, I definitely don't want to do this, <laughs> I actually just, while I was working full-time, since I couldn't just quit my job, I ended up learning how to code and started working on our prototype. It's unbelievable. I will say what's so interesting is as you're talking about all the data that you had to kind of figure out, I'm thinking about how even in America, even though we have national ID system and we have credit, we don't also have the best system for getting people's credit. I mean, even there's there's underserved populations within America that if you don't have, you know, wealthy family members that can kind of co-sign for you and you don't have, you don't understand credit, you actually also are left out of our credit system. So as you're talking, I'm like, hmm, we need to bring your your comprehensive holistic data collection to the United States too eventually, but I won't spoil the plot. I'm sure that's that's going to be in the future. But one other thing I did read that I thought was really interesting that in terms of the behavioral data that you collect is there are certain times of night that people make phone calls. And specifically, I saw in Kenya, like if you make a phone call later in the day, it's going to be more expensive. And so if someone does that, they're more likely to have or be more qualified. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys went about figuring out those kind of unique nuances for each county, country, whatever that looked like? Because obviously that's something you would not be able to know unless you really, really knew the population. I, and I know you guys do a lot of in-depth research. Can you maybe talk to me a little bit about what that process looks like, like identifying that set of data based on population? Because I'm sure it's very unique. I'm sure what the Philippines data set looks like to get approved or to get a certain line of credit or loan looks very different than Kenya. So could you talk a little bit about what that process looks like to like grabbing that data and putting it in your system as these are the metrics we look for? So the first thing is that, you know, we are trying to solve a global problem. And so we don't actually want there to be too many differences in how we serve, right? We, of course, want to develop I should say not true. So we want we want to have a very customized experience for our customers across markets. So the messages, the you know, the limits, the rates, the you know, feature set, rewards, etc will all be customized. But when it comes to I would say the infrastructure and how we decision, we do want that to be scalable. And the goal is actually how do we have the most approval rate across every country? And so those kind of, you know, the insights, I think it's in large part due to the fact that we have local team members. And so our U.S. team is actually the smallest team at Tala. We have full country leadership teams across all four of our countries with servicing all in those markets as well. 
And so a simple feature like that, it's not so simple, right? Sure, we can get the patterns of data to your point on, oh, this is something that's popping up. What does that actually mean for us? And so this goes back to credit scoring is really about understanding a person's capacity at any given time. And then it's also about understanding their character or behavior or likelihood to repay. And so if you take a feature like that, where you understand making outgoing calls is more expensive in the afternoon or evening versus morning, it points to liquidity. So a customer actually having the capacity to make a lengthy phone call at night versus the majority of their calls are all in the morning, right? Or the majority of their calls are all incoming, which is actually entirely free. And so it allows us to, to again, put it into that equation. But it's what I tell my team, our, our team all the time is that it's not about the data. It's actually about the stories behind the data. And so that's our job at Tala is really, how do we best know this customer? And how is that a moat for us that we then again, build on top of? Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, especially as a business, you want to scale this to be something massive that helps everyone. So I can see how it's important to really make sure that the solutions fit everyone. I do have a question about hiring. And this is more of a personal question and a personal curiosity, but um, I have this hypothesis and you know, maybe I'm a little biased because a lot of the people that I spend time with are also very passionate about the social impact space and are entrepreneurial themselves, that a lot of Gen Z and like younger millennials want to and must work for an organization that's mission-driven with like a clear purpose, a great culture. And so I actually think companies like that, I would not necessarily have an easier time hiring, but that it's a lot yeah, maybe I will say a little bit of an easier time hiring than other companies. Have you found that to be like a competitive advantage at Tala that there's a lot of people that are so passionate about the work that you do that especially in these like younger generations, Gen Z, younger millennials, that it helps you accelerate your mission? Because I do think this is hard work. This is complicated work. This is thoughtful work. There isn't totally a roadmap for a lot of this and you need the brightest mind solving it. Could you talk a little bit about what it's been like hiring your team and if you agree or disagree with, with my hypothesis? I agree with the hypothesis. I think I'd add to it to say, yes, we are unique in our mission, but we also want to bring in, to your point, the best and the brightest. And so individuals that have that skill set, that they can really make an impact as well. And so we're looking for, you know, those, I guess, unicorns that want both. They want to be in an environment that is challenging, that has strong work ethic, right? That they are going to be a multiplier. They're going to learn a lot and that it also comes with the heart. And so I think that's the hard part here is that, you know, I think historically or traditionally, many times we haven't seen that from social impact organizations, NGOs, nonprofits, right? To get to the kind of scale that we're talking about, we need both. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. I have one final question for you. This is something we ask all of our guests here. If there's one piece of advice that you would give all 20-somethings, what is that one piece of advice? I think the thing that's coming up the most for me in this conversation and the advice I would give is curiosity. So I think that in your 20s, you should really take the opportunity to be curious, to ask questions, and it doesn't mean leaving your job every few months, right? But it, what it really means is that you are learning as much as you can from every experience. 
And I think that is really where um, I see us sometimes I, as an or as a as a society, or even in our twenties, we get we get a little comfortable already. And I think that we have this opportunity with so much information out there to really take advantage of it. Amazing. I love that. And it's very full circle because we started with curiosity and here we are now. Shivani, thank you so much for being here. This was so fun. It was great to chat and I'm super impressed with all that you're doing at Tala. And yeah, obviously we'll, you know, for anyone that's listening, you know, check out what they're doing. And if this resonates, like, you know, go, go convince Shivani to hire you. But yeah, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.